Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Welcome to another episode of the Recruitment Flex. I'm Shelly and joined with me, of course, is Serge. Another episode. Yes. And why such a bland introduction? Usually you'll call me good looking or you'll oh, call sorry. Me charming. Oh, I missed my cue. Oh, oh, you should have put up a cue card for me. <laughs> you talk about charming and good looking. We have right. oh, really sorry. special guests. Jason Putnam, the chief revenue officer at Plum is joining us. Jason, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon, everybody. Shelly, Serge, how are you? The, the fact that we're not doing video, I, I will agree with you that I am charming and good looking. There you go, because <laughs> nobody's going to see it. So that's fine. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. Well, it's been a couple of months since we last talked to you and a lot has changed in your world. I saw something on LinkedIn, a new gig for you. So talk a little bit about that. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, I guess it has been a few months. Prior to that, I was at uh, PandaLogic, which everybody knows. Great run, great company. They went through an acquisition. And during that process, we were all excited and continue to keep that train chugging along, which it still is. And I ran into Caitlin, who's the CEO of Plum. And I knew her through some other people. And we had a really interesting conversation. And I ended up at a group dinner with her at the end of the table. And three hours later, we looked up and we were only speaking to each other. It was very peanut butter and jelly and everything they're trying to accomplish from a not only HR tech perspective, software perspective, but even for the, the greater good and where the, the macroeconomic workforce can be in the future based on what we're dealing with today. It checked all my boxes and originally what was going to happen is I had agreed to sit on their board and then a few weeks had passed and then we just said, fuck it, let's go. So here we are. Wow. But there's a big piece here that you missed in between, Jason. I do believe you received one of the most prestigious awards. And Good. I would imagine that would garner a lot of interest. Tell us a bit about that. It did. I was very uh, blessed to receive a, a Globy Award, and that was a Global Executive of the Year Award. That did garner some interest, right? So there was a lot of conversations mm-hmm. happening. And irrespective of all those and Everything else, Panda was really a good place with a great product and, and a great team. And mm-hmm. you always take those conversations. But you know, meeting Caitlin and meeting the team and understanding the product, we both knew immediately it was interesting. So as recruiters, I'm fascinated by this story because in in my mind, I'm imagining like all the big names were probably wanting to talk to you and recruit sure. you. So what was it about Plum? You, you use the term greater good. Talk to me about that, Jason. What was the attraction? So I love companies that not only can grow and scale, that's what I do. And I'm a go-to-market person. So sales, marketing, customer service, success, all that stuff. But then if there's potentially unicorn status because it's such a unique thing. So we talk about it being assessment. I don't think we belong on the assessment aisle. I think we're something different. I get that people need pattern recognition to do that. Cool. That's fine. We can deal with that. Mm -hmm. But then there's the hey, we're going to go sell employers or we're going to do a B2C and and do what LinkedIn does. But when it's something that can truly change the workforce and how the workforce is viewed and can put bias aside 
and also allow people to change their careers and be seen for who they are as people, not necessarily what they went to college for, or even the hard skills that they've learned over time. You know, I've experienced that. I know people who have experienced that, who have had to change careers and have all the soft skills to be able to do something if they were just given a chance. So for me, that was really interesting. And to your question, Shelly, the thing that really rang true for me, and I only realized it in retrospect, was if you look at Pando, Again, fantastic company. We were brought in to do exactly what we did and we executed it very well. Mm-hmm. Grow it really big. In, in that period of time, we bought a company. We, we had a huge exit. I won an executive of the year world, but there was this version of internal fulfillment that I didn't get. So my hard skills allowed me to do that job incredibly well. Mm-hmm. But what drives me versus drains me were not aligned with that. So if you go take a plum assessment, Serge, I know you've seen mine, We won't get too much into product details, but my top two kind of traits that fill me versus drain me are embracing diversity. And that's not in a DEI perspective. That is certainly true, but also uh, diversity of ideals, making people feel included, getting all this data from different sources and putting it all together. My number two is innovation. So I'm able to take all these different ideas, thoughts, and put them together in an innovative way to go to market and execute on it. From a Pando perspective, again, nothing wrong with the company, but we were an established company. We had a clear mission. The train was on the tracks and there really wasn't any diversion off that track. So it was only about execution. So I wasn't able to use those top two traits in that particular mm-hmm. format. Mm-hmm. So coming into a company like this, regardless of where they are as a size of a company, me bring, coming in to be able to develop change and optimize that go-to-market strategy, my top two traits are going to be utilized here for the next three or four years. And every day I get up and I jump out of bed to go do this because I'm that excited. Well, I'm excited just at the thought, and I will definitely take you up on your offer to do a plum assessment, because I think it's going to have such an impact on the workforce because of 2021 started this whole, I believe the wave is just starting in terms of resignations. We know that organizations are struggling to hire. And I think the biggest part of it is that they keep looking for the same thing. Yep. So the timing of what you're talking about is incredible. Certainly from the recognizing your top two talents and skills, but imagine that applied a thousand X, right? Hundreds of thousands, millions of people being able to identify what their strengths are and what's transferable. So help me get my head around how this fits into how employers can stop looking for the same old thing and start recognizing that innovation and inclusion skills that you just talked about and hiring for those. Yeah. So it, it's not the end-all be-all. It is a tool in the toolbox from an employer perspective, and it is employer-driven. Mm-hmm. And if you look at a total talent solution, that total talent solution, irrespective of Plum, should start with, as I bring talent in, what's important for me? And then as I move them through the organization, how am I going to keep them? How am I going to upskill them? How am I going to identify management and leadership potential? And you just nailed... It perfectly, Shelly, there's a lot of, and I don't mean bias in a bad way, but when you have a sales rep who's always at quota, you go hire sales reps who look like that person. And every person who gets promoted to be a sales manager or sales director are people who are quota crushers. And guess what? They're not always the best leaders, right? So if you can identify early on the soft skills that are inherent in us, they don't change and align that with hard skills, then you have the the perfect employee, which is great. Mm -hmm. But there are also times where you know exactly what you want that Java developer to look like from a hard skills perspective. And somebody may be perfect on paper, 
but they're a cancer when they come in, or a startup's not great for them, or teamwork is their lowest skill. So from a plum perspective, it is very easy for the organization to identify what those scoff skills are. Uh, it's an eight-minute uh, thing that employers and hiring managers all put together. But that part's really easy. And then it's identifying what are those skills when somebody comes in the door or is already in your organization. It's perfect if you're identifying somebody who already has the soft skills and then they have the hard skills to match. That's great. But what about if you want to put people on a track, right? I'm going to go out, hey, maybe I want to hire real estate agents. And I know exactly what soft skills a real estate agent needs, but it's really hard to hire real estate agents or it's really hard to hire truck drivers. Am I better off going out and bringing people in with other jobs and putting them on tracks internally to eventually be that? So what am I going to have when it comes out of that? Or even college students, we do a ton of campus recruiting. They don't have resumes. So what happens if I bring somebody in like me who said, I feel fulfilled every day in the role that I'm in and I've been here 40 days or whatever. So fulfillment leads to happiness, which leads to better productivity, which leads to better retention, better tenure, more referrals. And then you don't have the the biased thought where everybody looks the same, where everybody acts the same. We're doing this at a small scale right now because we're a small company. But over time, when we have 10, 20, 30, 40 million people who have plum profiles, right? Now I can identify a, a person coming out of college and saying, hey, here's the track you should be on. You should be on an individual contributor track based on your soft skills and you'll be great at it. Or we should put you on a management track or you have the soft skills to be an amazing Java developer or to be a teacher. And then over time, maybe long after we're all gone, right? If you can align those hard skills and soft skills, you know exactly who's going to be a perfect fit in that role. And it's not just the employer saying who's going to be a good fit. That candidate and that employee feels fulfilled in their role. And most people don't leave for money. They leave because they're not heard. They're not seen. They don't have the, the track. They don't feel fulfilled in the role. Ultimately, with what we're dealing right now, we don't have a talent acquisition problem. We have a talent retention problem. And people are not plugging the hole in the bathtub. They're just opening the spigot wider. And they're not being strategic about it. So they're competing for water. When everybody turned the faucets on full blast, supply of water has gone down and the cost has gone up. And instead of fixing the real problem, mm -hmm. they're just trying to open the water spigot as far as they can go to put more people in the tub. Okay. I'm excited to learn more. So I think everything that you said relates to exactly what's going in the world of work in 2022 and what we should expect. So one of the things that we talk about is the great resonation. Is it really the great resonation? Are we going to see that this year or is it the great realignment or the great reawakening? So how should organizations look at hiring and retaining in 2022? What's your thoughts around that? Great resignation is an interesting thing. And I think People may hate what I'm about to say. I think it's a really convenient excuse that you don't know what you're doing. That's my personal opinion. People always leave jobs. So if you go back during COVID, very few people got any type of salary increase or promotion, which makes sense, right? Everybody was locked down. People just want to be locked down in their job. They wanted to stay. They were happy they were retained. Guess what this year brought? On average, 3% salary increase. By the way, we just had 7% inflation. So people are leaving because they can. And because you as a company are saying, we're going to give you a 3% raise, but the market's going to give you a 25% raise. That is on the employer. Now, you shouldn't retain everybody. There are people who, again, aren't great at their job. There are people who should move on. There are people where you don't have a position for. But if you really focused on, if you keep the water you have and you give people opportunity to do lateral movement, upskilling, leadership tracks, whatever that may be, but you're also recruiting the right way when you bring them in. 
That is really what's going to drive it. But the great resignation, it's not like people are staying home. I'm so sick of hearing that. They're just going and taking other jobs. And by the way, Shelly, to your point, a stat just came out, 90% of people who are going to resign during the great resignation is December, January, February. 90%. So we haven't even seen the peak of it yet. Uh-huh. We yeah. just talked it's about it. It's just starting. It's just starting. We were talking be- about this in our episode we just recorded that Shelly's prediction is March because we're putting a lot of recruiters in the marketplace, right? There was 16,000 recruiter postings last week and we're seeing those numbers go up. Say half of those get hired. You're now putting 8,000 new recruiters in the system that are going to try to impress their boss. They're going to be very aggressive in sourcing people, which is why it's so critical for you to have the right approach when your employees to retain them. So that's where that is coming from. What is the main tactics or strategies that should be different that no one is doing right now? So I'm not an expert. I'll give you my opinion on this. And I want to talk a little bit about what you just said, Serge, and then I want to tell a story if I can. The problem with flooding the market with a bunch of recruiters and also more importantly, a bunch of dollars. So pre-COVID, what did it cost to get a a click on Indeed for a nurse versus what does it cost post-COVID? It's probably 100x, right? So we're all competing with that. And then as you look at the, when I say tools are people, they're recruiters and recruiting is the hardest job in the frigging world to do. It's a two-way sale. Nobody's ever happy. It's a hard job. But then you have the tools around it, technology, process, all those other things. Unfortunately, because the practices are still wrought with confirmation bias and pattern recognition from what used to work, nobody's doing it in an innovative way. So if you think about just assessment tools or background checks or all these things, almost everything out there is really designed to screen people out. Yes. What I love about Plum, not a product pitch, enables people to screen in. So if I am looking for truck drivers or hairdressers or whatever, and I know the inherent soft skills, the skills that I am born with that I'm going to bring to to bear every day and make you happy as my employer, if I know the soft skills that are going to make somebody important, but potentially that person doesn't have uh, a four-year degree, or that person has a different last name that I don't understand, or maybe they didn't come from tech at all, but I need them for a tech role. If they have the soft skills, I'd rather compete where the 16,000 recruiters in the market aren't going after those people and go figure out how to bring them in, upskill them, train them. They will be incredibly loyal. They will stay forever. They will bring referrals. But the the story I want to tell, and it's what I find in this industry, whether I'm on you know a show like this or speaking or, or writing, is we're all so close to the trees, it's really hard for people to hear do it differently. Because when you say do it differently, that means, hey, change things 5%. And where I think we need to do from a tech stack approach, but just more rationale is change everything that we're doing. And that is very scary. But if what we were doing was working, we wouldn't be in the issue that we're dealing with today. So let's do a quick history lesson, interrupt me if you want. So let's go back to the days of our grandparents and let's say they were looking for an apartment. Yeah. So people stayed in those apartments much longer. My wife is first generation. Her parents never owned a house. They had three apartments their entire life. And if they were going to leave that apartment, they would give a long time notice. They would help the landlord find a tenant. And it was very ingrained in them. And maybe if they were looking for an apartment, they would drive down the road and see a, a sign in a window that said for rent. So if we go into like our parents' generation, they didn't stay as long as their parents did. They gave notice, but it was more transactional right? They weren't as loyal to it. And if they would maybe jump for a better deal or a bigger apartment, and then what would the landlord do for them? 
Well, they would ideally, if they were innovative back in the day, they'd put something on the internet, they put an ad, maybe old school in the newspaper. And that was the original early on apartment guide and for rent, they would do all that. And that became very innovative. But then as these big groups started doing it, right, apartment guide and for rent were dominated by Gables and all these other REITs. And the local landlord got pushed out. So they went to like Craigslist and things like that. And then eventually they went into a little bit of social. But if that group of people would have done nothing but put a sign in their window, they would have never gotten a tenant. So then we fast forward to today, people are changing apartments all the time. And the question is, if you flip that and think of yourself as that community who are looking for tenants, what do they do that's different? So they talk to their tenants. They already know when their tenants' leases are up. They do events for their tenants. They, they have conversation with that particular tenant to say, hey, I know you may leave. What can we do to keep you? Hey, I know you want to change apartments. Maybe we can get you that three bedroom for the same price as the two or get one with a better view. They offer incentives. They offer referrals. They also try to rehash their database. So they know when people were looking, maybe they're at a different apartment, they can offer them better deals. And then they go out and they do a ton of social pushing. They advertise in advance, but that advertising that they're not doing an aggregate, but specific for a unit, they don't do that until they've exhausted all their other mechanisms to, to fill that, including the person who's already in the apartment. If in today you own an apartment complex and all you're doing is put a sign out in front of your apartment complex, you're not renting any apartments. So now let's substitute apartment for employer, the complex, the company, and let's substitute the unit for a job and let's substitute the tenant for an employer or a candidate. Most people in this industry are functioning just like their grandparents did or at best their parents. Yeah. So until we start taking these innovative approaches, which aren't innovative, they're just innovative in our industry, right? And let's say there's just not enough people to rent those apartments. Then you have to figure out ways to screen in. Maybe you don't have the best background check, or maybe you don't have the money down, or maybe you don't have all these different things. So if you're truly looking to fill from an occupancy perspective, not only how can you keep the people you have, but how can you bring in people that you maybe never would have had before? Wow. Okay. As I'm listening to you tell this the story, Jason, I get it. And I've lived through the throwing ad in the newspaper. So what is the innovation? Do you have some suggestions? I think we're doing it backwards. Yeah. So again, if you put me in uh, running TA, if I had an open role, the first thing I would do was I would go to my employee base and see if anybody at the company wants that role, irrespective if it's a lateral move, a step down or a step up. So I would exhaust all my internal efforts to make sure that nobody in my company wants that open job. Number one, it's a known entity. It's free. I don't have to take them through onboarding. The employee is happy. That's the first thing I would do. The second, and by the way, everyone says they do this. Nobody does it really well. They may look at it from a hard skill perspective. Nobody does it from a soft skill perspective. So you may have the perfect skills to be a Java developer, but I have you as an administrative assistant today in my company. You're already an employee. I should be willing to put money in to upskill you to be that Java developer. Absolutely. The second thing I would do, and if you think about from a recruitment marketing perspective, if Surge was in my ATS, I've probably paid $30 five times to have Surge be in my ATS. I would then start pinging the ATS in a much more creative way to say, hey, new jobs are opening. I know you may have been the second candidate or the 50th candidate. Let's look at your hard skills, but also your soft skills in the same way. Start bringing those candidates in. And my third option would be to go out to market and spend money bringing net new people in. Whereas what we do today is we throw all the money at TA, right? And TA and TM and talent management don't really communicate all that well. 
I bring people in, then talent management goes, you brought me the wrong people. And TA goes to talent management, well, you're churning all the wrong people, which makes me bring the right people in. Those two people need to get together and figure out what the right fit is and what the long-term strategy is for their whole cohort of employees. And then start building a strategy around that as opposed to just being so tactical. There is no strategic approach to this. And until we start putting strategy first, they're not going to be able to solve it. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. And what you mentioned there is your strategy is leveraging those tactical items. And the one that is really missed by most recruiters and talent acquisition leaders is what's in your actual ATS. So you've got millions of people millions. that have shown interest in your company in the past. They already know your brand and they showed enough interest that they took the steps to apply. There is situations where it really depends on when you apply if the recruiter is going to see your resume. So you apply, recruiter is busy on another role, doesn't check, there's 20 resumes that have applied and five of them are really good, they're never going to get to you. So now we've got candidates that have never been touched, you've already paid the cost of acquisition to get these people through your system, they already like your brand or enough, and we ignore them. If you're running a sales organization and you would ignore everyone that's tried to get a demo with you in the past or have shown any interest to your articles and just leaving them there, if you're the VP of sales or the chief revenue officer, you would get fired. Yep. It's the, we are not taking that type of approach to this. And frankly, I think it's worse to some extent. If you think about somebody who's got to go through a thousand resumes, how do they sort them? They do it one of a couple of ways. Let's do it alphabetically. Do you know how many people get interviews who, whose last names start with A, B, and C? Proportionally, it's so much higher than those who are at the end of the alphabet because recruiters sort it alphabetically. That's ridiculous. Like It's ridiculous, but it's not the recruiter's fault. They don't have the strategy and the operational excellence in place to figure out a better way to do it. So you just do what you can. And if you put yourself in that position, Everybody in in talent acquisition is being asked to do significantly more with significantly less resources. So you just have to come up with these constant ad hoc ways to get things done. And there just has to be a better way to do it. In sales, you, you know this very well, right? We have tools that do it. We have strategy to do it. We have scoring that does it. Yeah. Well, if they hit a lead score of 100, somebody reaches out to them. And that fallow nature of the database surge, I, I completely agree. One thing I like about Plum, not as a product pitch, I don't really think of us as an assessment, but unlike other quote unquote assessment tools, it's not a fearful thing. As the person taking the assessment, you get value. You get something back that tells you who you are, that tells you what your soft skills are to let you know how you're feeling, why you're feeling and potentially help you in your career path. So imagine taking that to an entire fallow database. There's a value to those groups. And then there's a value to you as the employer to be able to do that. I agree. So Jason, I'm getting really concerned about a trend that I'm seeing in the industry right now. The last couple of years, we talked a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and it was a major focus for a lot of talent acquisition departments. What I'm starting to see is that focus and that attention waning by a lot of organizations. And why I'm making that call is, perfect example, better.com lays off a thousand people. And part of that is their whole talent acquisition department that focuses on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Am I being paranoid to think that is something that's losing, I guess, traction or is it really happening? What's your thoughts on that? I think paranoia is healthy at some extent, right? <laughs> because you're not just being paranoid. There's correlation and there's data and you can look at some trends, but think about a company is an entity. It's not people. A company is an organization. And inherently most companies don't give a shit about people, 
People within the company give a shit about people, but companies can't give, it's a thing. They cannot yeah. give a shit about people. Yeah. Ultimately, that company just needs enough workers to get the work done to maintain whatever work needs to be done. That As an entity, it doesn't care. And by the way, the bigger you get, the less it cares. And the higher up you get in organizations, typically the less they care, right? I just have these things I have to hit and I don't care who does it. So we're at this interesting pivotal point, which I hope people listen, that DE&I is really important. But if you're sitting at the table with a bunch of executives, not you, not Shelly, not me, but just think about a company of robots, all they say is we need feet. And if we don't have enough feet and enough hands to do the work, but if we waited three more weeks, we could have an African-American or we could have a Latino. They don't want to wait two weeks. That is in their mind, and I'm not agreeing with this, that is a nice to have, not a need to have, just solve my problem I have now. So I think that's the trend we're seeing because- there is so much demand to get talent in. Now, what they're not thinking about is if I just open that aperture up and I double down on DEI, I would be able to screen in so many more people who could get the jobs done. I know Checker is a great example of this, the background check company. They have a whole process for people with criminal records to help screen them in. And if, if it's a bad thing to help expunge some of that. So why not start screening people in who can do the job versus just being focused so myopically on what somebody's resume says. If you look at Sociobank for us, for campus recruiting, no more resumes. They only use Plum to do that. So they're able to screen in the human element without the bias of, hey, have you done the job before or anything else? Thanks, Jason. Uh, I think to close off this episode, one of the things that I'd like to get your input and insights is what should talent acquisition practitioners have in their toolbox? I'll give you plenty of tools. But I think it's more rationale than it is tools, because what I'd like to do is think about what you want to be true and then pick the tools that you need to make that true versus, you know, kind of what Salesforce does. Salesforce says, here's how you run a CRM. Now make your company fit this. I'm much more of a fan of how do you want to run your company and then go find the tools that make sense for it. So what we're missing in talent acquisition is that crossing of the aisle, thinking about talent acquisition as a sales function right? Go start getting your CMO involved. Go start getting your marketing office. Go start talking to your VP of sales, how they manage a lead funnel. And that is incredibly eye-opening. And I know a lot of talent acquisition people are now starting to bring in CRM type functions and drip campaigns. At the end of the day, this is a lead function. And that's ultimately what you need. And the more you can automate, and again, people are scared to automate in talent acquisition, unlike any other vertical function within the organization, because talent acquisition is so focused on the tactics that they are working in the business, not on the business. Whereas every other executive is working on the business and driving strategy, that when you're working in the business, it's very scary to take big leaps because of any mistake you make may cost you your job, which is not true. So take some big swings, take some big risks and start treating this like it is your own business, but it is a sales organization. So within that concept, Sure, everyone should go buy Plum. It's amazing. But if you look at the talent acquisition side of it, what can you do to automate talent acquisition that's going to make your life easier? And then what are you going to do to free up your recruiter's time, which is the most important time you have as a TA leader, start automating everything for your recruiters that are administrative so they can focus on the human element that they should be doing, which is reaching out to people and connecting with people. Every one of them today is doing so much nonsense that can be automated 
versus their job that they were hired into. As we all know, there should be two things that recruiters should be focused on is the candidate and the hiring managers. Everything else is noise. So if you can automate the rest, you're in a really good position and you'll see the execution level of your recruiters go up dramatically. And that is not something that we're seeing because I'm still seeing a lot of organizations and I know you are, Shelly, too, as well. I would say 70% of their role is doing administrative tests. These are all elements that a recruiter should not touch, similar to the sales function, right? Salespeople generally are really bad at administrative tasks or anything that's detail-oriented, but it doesn't mean they're really good at their job and we should treat recruiters exactly the same. I do believe that um, expecting a true recruiter to be an administrator is just wrong. But the fact is when we take a a real look behind the curtain, it is true where they're spending their time is on these tasks that my God, they were automated uh, 10 years ago. This is how we've trained our recruiters to think what their job is. This is what we've trained hiring managers and the organization to think what recruiting is part of our job as talent acquisition practitioners or in the industry to help those leaders understand what a real leader in talent acquisition is and a real recruiter, what they should be doing, similar to what a salesperson should be doing. Jason, jump in. Yeah, I have kind of three points. Number one, my goal on this is for Shelly to get the last word before you do, Serge. That's goal number one. Goal number two is if you think about the typical recruiter and if, if we were to give them a plum assessment, and say the best recruiter should look like this from a soft skills perspective. Yeah. My assumption is all those administrative skills drain them every day because it is not part of their core competency, which makes them a successful recruiter. So the, my assumption is the reason people leave the job is they're just burned the hell out because yeah. why should I do that? So now let's think of a really well-functioning sales organization, which is what I do. So the best use of your great salespeople's time is to spend as much time talking to customers and presenting the product, doing needs analysis, doing all that. So what do you build? Will you build a great marketing function with great demand gen that sends leads in? You then have either automation or a more junior level person work on those leads, warm those leads up, qualify them, put some in a nurture campaign, and ultimately you find some that you send to salespeople. So the salespeople then hop in and ideally a well-run organization, if salespeople could spend 40 hours a week doing nothing but demoing your product, that is perfect. Yeah. And now with all the tools, even the notes they're taking automatically get put into CRM, right? So if all sales reps and really good sales reps want to present the product, talk about the deal, put a proposal together and move on. Recruiting is exactly the same function. I don't know why we treat it differently. HR is different, but recruiting is exactly the same function. It absolutely is. <laughs> And I think even more difficult is because you're not only selling the opportunity to candidates in a competitive market, but you're also then selling the um, candidates to the hiring leader. Yeah. And where is the match? Like it's, (laughs) you've got to love sales to be a really good recruiter, but you're right. I love uh, what you just said, Jason, recruiters are burnt out because we've not analyzed the job that they're doing or given them the tools to do it properly. To your point, sir, they're spending 70% of the time doing the job they weren't hired to do. And 70% of that time doing things that are not in their core competency, things that drain them, not drive them. Yeah, You would leave too. I would leave too. And I'm very excited that you join a Canadian company. Like I said before the show is 
You made such an impact the last time you came on the recruitment flex to the Canadian market that everyone in Canada tried to recruit you. So you are now going to be a regular. We reserve the right to have you on again. Thanks, Jason. This was fantastic. Thank you. Anytime you want me here. Happy to do it. Talk again. What was it like to be there for historical sports moments and unforgettable performances? To be behind the scenes? On Pressbox Access, you'll hear from me, Todd Jones, and other sports writers about their experiences with the greatest athletes, coaches, and sports events of the past half century. We'll share some stories behind the stories, some big, some small, and some we've only told each other. Let us buy you around on Pressbox Access.